0: Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. You know, in preparation for this psalm, one of the things I was reminded of was just how many differences the church has in theology. It just You read through commentaries about what this guy or this brother says over here, and it's just it's endless almost, but... One of the things I'm really grateful for is the unity we have in Christ and just how even amongst our elders, when we have a difference, we, want, we desire to speak the same thing to you. So but there's also room for disagreement. But in this psalm, one of the things I really noticed is if you picture a track meet, you know, there's always the gun that goes off, right? In the process of that gun going off, you know, you got guys before they get out of the gate, the real big difference, what I see, is when you look at, like Brother Ross was talking about in Sunday school, there's most of us come out of a dispensational hermeneutic. Well, hermeneutic is a science of interpretation. So the way we look at the Bible, we don't need to look any further than the first century, than when this psalm was talking about. Most of the fulfillment initially started in the first century with Christ coming. Announcing himself as king, you know, riding in on the donkey. We call that the inaugurated aspect of the kingdom. You know, like we have a presidential inauguration every year or every four years when we have a new president. But Christ is the king. And these words here of David in Psalm 2, we're talking about the kingship of Christ. That's the title of this message. The kingship of Christ and the universality of the messianic reign in God's kingdom. The reformers have seen this psalm as a Christological psalm, which means in relation to Christology, also known as the study of Christ. So this is a Christ-centered psalm. This is about Yahweh's Messiah. Okay, that's the Savior, and there's only one Savior that we know of, and his name is Jesus Christ. But that's not all The psalm is. It is also a prophetic psalm, a messianic psalm, like I said. And it's a kingdom psalm. So as a kingdom psalm, you know, the last time I was up here preaching, it was about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom began, like I said a moment ago, when Jesus announced himself as king. Some of my uh, younger children are memorizing the gospel of John with me. And in John chapter four, when the woman came to him and said, we're looking for the king of the Jews. And he said, it is he who you're speaking with. A lot of these words that we see in different commentaries, and like I said, some go this way, some go that way, but one of the things I wanted to really do today is to really just focus in on the technical aspect of this psalm and just try to bring out what the context is saying, and we see how much of it is fulfilled already initially and is being fulfilled over this present age that we live in. My prayer is that we'll see this psalm as the coronation of Christ as the conquering king that he is. Because the rider of the white horse in Revelation 6, I don't believe that that's some antichrist or some boogeyman that we need to be afraid of. I believe that that's our Lord going out with his bow and his crown. And he's conquering, going forth conquering souls, bringing them into the kingdom of God. So let's pray and get right into this psalm. Father... I'm so grateful for this opportunity, Lord, just to get up here and to bring your word to my brothers and sisters here today. I pray, Father, that you would give me clarity and boldness to proclaim your word. I pray that you would also cause attentiveness to happen because there is a lot of, just a lot of material we're going to cover here today, a lot of verses. pray that you would grant your people close attention, that we may be sanctified by your truth, and we pray that you would do that. By the power of your spirit here today, in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, then speak to them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So Psalm 2 opens with the rhetorical question, why do the nations rage? Or better yet, why do the heathen rage? Why do pagan people groups rage against their creator? Seems kind of silly, doesn't it? Why would they rage? It makes no sense at all for them to rage, as a matter of fact, because they cannot prevail against his mighty hand. Nevertheless, they rage on as they have from the beginning the hebrew word here for rage is ragosh and it means to cause a tumult an uprising so when we ask the rhetorical question why do they rage why are they quarreling why are they causing strife why are they plotting this vain thing this is what the rhetorical question attempts to do is to draw out logical thought as I said a moment ago, there is no logic behind it whatsoever because it makes no sense for creatures to rebel against their creator as if God doesn't see their plots. But God does see their plots. But is that it? Do we believe that God is just some God who sits back and reacts to what's happening around us? Because there are times when we act like that's how God is. I mean, how many times do we even talk to each other as we go through the week? You see this what's happening right now? Isn't this crazy? As if there's no such thing as God. Sometimes we speak to each other that way. But God is behind the things that we see in this world. And we'll see as as this develops, his grand plan for them as it unfolds. We don't want to fall into what a mild form of what's called open theism. Open theism is a false teaching that says that God does not know the future. That God looks into the future and he learns. And there are people who actually believe this. So we don't want to fall into something like that. That's not the God that we serve. We'll find out here today that these nations are raging because God's sovereign hand has brought them to rage against him for his own good purposes. It is the sovereign decree of God that they take counsel against Yahweh and against his anointed. God is the one gathering these nations together because he is the ultimate cause of everything. Through redemptive history, God has always brought judgment to people. And that judgment involves either mercy or destruction. The cross is a form of judgment. The cross is a form of judgment. I don't think we think about that a lot when we say the cross is a form of judgment. I mean, the Bible says that when we believe in Christ, we pass from death unto life. That's because our sins have already been paid for, past, present, and future. So when we think of judgment, it involves either a blessing of salvation, where Christ has been judged for you, or a curse of divine retribution, where you're going to be judged and pay for your own sins. And as we have this progressive revelation, we see that the nation's raging is the work of God clearly here. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter four, beginning in verse twenty four. Uh, you turn there. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage? and the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do, notice this part right here, whatever your hand, and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So the Lord acknowledged here, the Lord God is the one who's acknowledged here as the one who made heaven and earth and everything in it. And by the mouth of King David, we receive this revelation as to why the nations actually do rage against the Father and against the Son. But pay close attention to what verse 27 says. Truly your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, with the nations, And the people of Israel, they were gathered together to do whatever your hand, who is your hand? It's God had purposed to be done beforehand. So the immediate context of this prophecy in Psalm two was Herod, Pontius Pilate and the nations and the people of Israel talking about the crucifixion. And the crucifixion wasn't some afterthought. It wasn't some it wasn't some plan B. It was the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, if we read a couple of chapters back, chapters back in Acts chapter 2. So God is the one who gathered these nations who are raging to come together to crucify his son. And the nations are still raging today, not just from the crucifixion, but also from the work of the cross against the people who have been redeemed by the work of the cross. Zechariah 14.2 this is fulfilled in the first century. We'll see here in a second. It says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So, this is a reference of a snapshot of the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD. So, you notice what's the same here? The nations did not stop raging. After Christ was put to death, as a matter of fact, years after they continued to rage. Zephaniah 3, 8, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them. My indignation, all my burning anger for the earth will be devoured. By the fire of my zeal. Again, the prophet brings us a reference of the, the kingdom age that we live in, of the Messiah. When God will sovereignly gather nations, assemble kingdoms to pour out his wrath upon them. This is all the work of God, his burning anger. Sometimes we can, I don't want to say we misrepresent God, but we have to remember that God is holy. That's his overarching attribute that we need to talk about, that God is holy. And we're not. We're sinners. So when we present God, we need to make sure that people need to, you know, they need to understand what the fear of God really is. Because nowadays, that's kind of an afterthought. You talk to people about the fear of God, they almost laugh in your face like it's something to be mocked at or scoffed at. But the psalmist said that these things were God's work. And when we consider this, we need to consider what kind of lens God wants us to see this wicked world through. We've seen a lot of wickedness in our own lifetime. Some of you that are older than me have seen even more wickedness. But we don't need some newspaper theology that things are getting worse and worse. And that's where we get our theology from. We just kind of go to the newspaper and then figure out how to interpret the Bible. And we don't need some other theology if things are getting better and better. Okay, we don't need to do that. We need to go to the text and see through biblical study what is God saying about these things. When we look back in history, what do we see? 9-11? Nations rage there, right? Alexander the Great, the Ottoman Empire, 70 AD, the war of 70 AD, the transatlantic slave trade, the Crusades, The Caribbean slave trade, World War I, World War II, Pol Pot, I could just keep going. Tower of Babel, you know, the male babies being destroyed in Jerusalem. Why do the nations continue to rage? Well, in every event that happens in human history, the hand of God is involved. And a lot of times we don't really look at it that way. We say, oh, there's all this evil and all this suffering. But we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him to those who are the called according to his purpose. And we may not see how all that plays out in this world, but when we get to glory, we will see it. I I believe we truly will see all of it. I don't know how he's going to unfold it, but he will unfold it. So these lenses that the psalmist wants us to see, that every conflict in human history has a purpose behind it. God is working behind the scenes in ways we cannot see. And his purposes are to bring glory unto himself. And that involves setting his people free, working salvation in the earth. Psalm 74, 12 says that very thing. For God is my king from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And so, brothers and sisters, when you turn on your television Understand that these nations that are raging, we see bombs being dropped. We hear all the stuff going on in the Ukraine. We hear about all the lawlessness with all the police and lack thereof here where we live and other places and riots. But God's hand is still in it. God, a good God, people say a good God wouldn't let all this happen. And we have to say, hold it, hold it. This doesn't detract from the goodness of God. Because God is working behind the scenes in ways that you and I can't see, okay? That, you know, Jesus is the one who keeps Israel. And he last time I checked, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. The nation's plan is to hide their counsel from God. And it's futile because he sees their day coming, not just sees it. And reacts to it again. He's bringing this to pass. Isaiah 29, 15 says, woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Who knows us? Okay, that's how the wicked operate. And a woe is proclaimed to them who seek to do this as if God doesn't see, but God does see. You know why? Because the proverb says the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good and the evil. Okay, and that's not all that's going on when he's watching it, because he knows how he's working out his good purposes, his holy and righteous cause. Because known to God from eternity are all his works. God doesn't just see foresee what's going on. He doesn't look and learn and react. God foresees that which he is accomplishing in this world and his grand plan. Is to cause these nations that rebel against him. Look at verse two in Psalm chapter two. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against, against his anointed. The Melech in Hebrew or the kings of the earth who set themselves along with the rulers or the princes, their parties to this rebellion that they take against God's Messiah. They set themselves Okay, the word yaktab in Hebrew is a military action and it means to take a stand or to stations oneself against something. Okay, so this text is clearly demonstrating that it's the father and the son that they are taking this aggression towards. So when they say in verse three, come, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. I want us to see the purpose in that because cords in scripture are not only what binds the Godhead together. God is one. God is one, Father, Son, and Spirit, okay? But God's people are one. We are also one in Christ, okay? So cords are used in scripture to represent a covenantal connection symbolically that communicates a picture of us being bound together in Christ, okay? So the imagery here is these bonds, these cords that they want to separate. It's not just the father and the son, but it's his body. It's what unites us together in Christ. And so these cords are eternally inseparable. So it's futile for them to try to break these bonds. They could never do it. Because the unregenerate are blind to God's good purposes. They're blind to it. Even though they desire to see these cords broken, as if it were possible, they don't see the glorious work of God, that he's bringing many sons into glory. And that's what unifies us in Christ. The world sees our God as a God of misery. You ever heard, you ever witnessed to people and they, they look at, oh, you worship that God? That, like God is somehow wicked. You know, that really... That really used to bother me when I first got saved. I didn't really know how to defend my faith that well. And I would hear things that a lot of my atheistic friends. I'm sorry, I'm wrestling with this chair. (laughs) I would hear a lot of things that my atheistic friends would say. And secular humanists, I didn't really know how to refute those things from scripture. And I'd just get angry. And I'd be like, man, you're foolish. And, you know, they'd say, well, you are too. And it wouldn't go anywhere. But. It wasn't until later on when the Lord started teaching me the doctrines of grace that I started seeing, well, wait a minute. I'm talking to blind dead men. No wonder they don't see. No wonder they don't understand. No wonder they can't spiritually discern or or praise things. Because they're accusing the most gracious being in the universe of being a God of misery, a God of death, a God of barbarism, a God of slavery. They don't understand anything about God a vicious taskmaster who isn't worthy to follow. That's how they see our God. And so when they look at these cords that we have, they look at them as worthless yokes, like we're the ones in slavery, like we're the fools who come here who have no idea what we're doing. I say, well, you got one part right. We are slaves. (laughs) We're slaves of Christ. And so... Remember that. We don't need to apologize for saying that to people, that this word slavery can only be used about the transatlantic slave trade, and if you're white, you can't use that word. No, you can. We are doulas. We're slaves of Christ, okay? doesn't matter what names they call you after you use it. They're going to call me the same names they call you, just maybe a little bit different. So remember, these unconverted people who are looking at these worthless, these yokes that they call them worthless yokes. But these are not worthless yokes. These are cords. But these cords that they desire to cast off are metaphorical in nature for rebellion. They desire to rebel against God in doing so. So as they rebel, look at the Lord's answer in verse 4. This is really heavy stuff right here. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. There's an old saying in scripture. I don't know how many of y'all know it, but when God laughs, who knows the rest? It ain't funny. When God laughs in scripture, there's nothing funny about it. A lot of older theologians used to say that when I would listen to a lot of their sermons and just read a lot of even commentaries. There's nothing funny about when God laughs. I've recorded a couple of times here in Psalm thirty-seven seventeen. It says, the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. Psalm 59, 8, very similar to Psalm 2. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. And then there's Proverbs 1, 26 through 28. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. It's not anything funny there, is it? You got people groping in the dark when it's too late. Now we want to be delivered. No. I don't want nothing to do with you. That's God's response. So when God is laughing, he's getting ready to wreak havoc. Okay. And we're about to see that unfold here in a second. Wrath. God's deep displeasure. It doesn't sound very pleasurable, does it? Well, that's because it isn't. That's what awaits those who remain in opposition to God. The word here for deep displeasure is sharon in Hebrew. It means burning anger burning anger and just think about that's holy burning anger and that's a holy burning anger that is eternal and it's never going to end that's extremely bad news for people who from the cradle to the grave remain outside of christ but it's consistent with the end of the wicked in these other uh, messianic psalms here psalm 72 9 psalm 72 9 note this if you're I want to take a note on Messianic Psalms. Psalm seventy-two nine says, Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. In contrast to the elect who God brings from the wilderness to come bow before him in Christ, the wilderness is often used uh, symbolically for spiritual times of testing or dryness. When God's people wandered in the wilderness, it was not a good time. But sheep are wanderers. Sheep are wanderers. Okay, Sheep are wanderers and we are sheep. So here's a picture of God bringing his elect from desert wandering, thirsting, not knowing where we're going, to come and graciously and humbly bow before him the fountains of living water. So remember, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. God is the one who is bringing his people, as we see here in Psalm 72, 9, from the wilderness to bow before him. As opposed to his eternal enemies who will lick the dust and remain wanderers in the desert, dry and thirsty with nothing to drink. Kind of reminds me of hell. Kind of reminds me of hell. I just came I didn't even think of that when I was preparing for this. Psalm one ten is another one. This is another messianic psalm. This is the most heavily quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm one ten five through seven says, The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations, He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. The Lord Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of the father. We know that from Hebrews chapter one, verse three. He is the one who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high when he by himself purged our sins. And he also is the one who is going to execute kings in the day of his wrath. He's going to judge among the nations. He's going to fill places with dead bodies. Okay? A lot of times when we read stuff like this, it's good to be reminded of how all this ends so that we can have a sense of urgency to proclaim Christ. You know, I've lost a lot of loved ones in the last decade, and I went to a family reunion recently, and it just, the images just stuck in my head how little it was. It was like, where is everybody? Where are all the elders of the family? Oh, we're them now. (laughs) That's right. I'm looking at all this gray hair and I'm like, yep, it's it's me. No longer am I looking for my aunt's gumbo. It's my wife's gumbo now, (laughs) you know. And so as that urgency has gone on, a lot of them have died and gone to hell. And I'm sure a lot of you have experienced the same thing. Lost loved ones, you get older, you lose them. They don't know Christ. You know, I weep over them. They're not coming back and I'm never seeing them again. And so may the Lord bless your efforts as well as mine to try to reach our lost loved ones, because it is very uh, disheartening when we lose them and they die without Christ. But this is where the end of all sinners will find their place and it won't be rest. There's no rest for the wicked, none whatsoever. So this is the holy wrath of God on all those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1, 3 through 10. And I won't preach through all these verses because I don't think we're going to have enough time, but I'll read them. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is made known evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. This is not a good end for people, but praise be to God, this is not our end. This is not our end because of what the Lord has done. And we don't have time to cover all of this, but I will tell you that those who have obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's because God has granted us faith He's granted us repentance. He's granted us the new birth. And we have bowed the knee to Christ. But for anybody in the sound of my voice here today, if you have not bowed the knee to Christ, children and maybe even some adults, the wrath of God remains upon you. And it's very serious because there's no way you can make yourself right with God just as all these nations who plot vain things. God's eternal plan unfolds here in verse six. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God's holy king that he has set over Zion is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that Zion is the church because of Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. And the author of Hebrews spells it out when he says to us that that we were brought to not the mountain that they were terrified of, but to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. That is us. That is us. Verses seven and eight. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. OK, so there's a series of fulfillment of this passage that we need to pay close attention to, because when he tells him to ask of me and I will give you the nations of your, for your inheritance. This is a conversation between the father and the son where we're able to spy in on some conversations they had in eternity. They've recorded that here for us in scripture. Ask of me, this is Yahweh saying to Yeshua, this is the father saying to the son, ask of me, son, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. This is verses seven and eight. So in verse seven, when Yahweh says that, I have begotten you. And this decree, all credible scholars that we know of, call this none other than the covenant of redemption okay the covenant of redemption now when the father tells him that he's going to give him these possessions this is the father granting to the son the elect the chosen a people from all different types of nations all different types of tongues to atone for and this is the high priestly prayer of jesus in john chapter 17 So when you think of John 17 and you're reading John 17 verses one through five, I want you to think of Psalm two verses seven and eight, because here it is right here. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh. Pay attention to this part right here that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Remember, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Jesus is saying that he's going to give eternal life to as many as the father gave to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now pay attention here. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Christ is acknowledging the time of the decree in Psalm 2. He is asking the Father to glorify himself with him, that is the Lord Jesus, with the glory that they possess in eternity past. Now, we're going to speed through these next few verses. Hebrews 2 is another example of the son being granted a people from the father. Hebrews two eleven through 13. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren, in the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you and again I will put my trust in him and again here am I this is the Lord Jesus talking here am I and the children which God has given me He's singing this praise in the midst of a people that his father gave to him John 665 John 665 And Jesus said, therefore, as I've said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. No one can come unless you've been granted by the father. So as we pause for a second, I want to understand that we should really adore our God because we are a love gift from the father to the son. Didn't have anything to do with us didn't have anything to do with us. This should cause the most deepest praise and adoration of our God. Matthew 11, 25 and 27. Now this is one I always struggle not to get choked up on because it's so deep and it's so rich and it brings out such, such praise from my heart. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal. God wills to reveal himself to whom he pleases. But those ones that he is is willing to do so to are the ones that the father gave to him. So we need to understand that. We need to understand that. and We need to meditate on that. So we see here that the decree in Psalm 2-7 in eternity past is settled here in time. In these verses, the issues of time and eternity come to pass in the here and now they play out they play out moving on we covered seven and eight moving on to verse nine you shall break them with the rod of iron you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel christ is the one who breaks the nations with the rod of iron and he does so through his messianic rule over his people and this rod of iron is the same one that we are told not to despise We're not to despise when we get in sin. God is still good. And we need to remember he's going to do something about it. Okay, unless we judge ourselves first, then we repent. Right. But it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. So the Lord chastens those who he loves. But pay close attention here, because this is an ecclesial. This is an ecclesiology issue right here. He grants authority over this rod to his shepherds, okay, to your elders. And this belongs in the kingdom because in the kingdom, sinners sin. Revelation 2, 26 through 29 quotes this very verse. It says, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him, I will give him power over the nations. He shall rule them with the rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. As I also ever see for my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So God has given this responsibility to his elders, to shepherd his people, to rule over them. All the different nations, all the different people groups who come through the doors to worship him on Sunday. There's checks and balances. They need to be kept in line. Okay, and guess what? Elders are sheep, too. They need to be kept in line, too. All right? This is talking about church discipline. Okay, so the rod is not just used by God, but the rod is used by uh, his men, his men that he has in charge running his kingdom business. We as sinners need accountability. The young man today was talking about that. He said, you know, brother, I'm so grateful we found this church. I found this church, but... uh, I need accountability. You know, I get out of line and I sin. I said, "Well, welcome to the club." We all do. We all need church membership is biblical. People who don't believe in that, they got some serious theological errors. But that's a different sermon. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So, Psalm two nine is speaking about a time when God would use His rod to discipline those whom he loves to those who he's zealous for to those he wants to repent to those he wants to be holy as he is holy verse 10 verse 10 now therefore be wise O kings be instructed you judges of the earth you know the gospel is our primary mission i remember when we have this bible study yeah we debate theology all the time and there is no argument that the gospel is our primary mission. Every Christian who's orthodox and sound believes that. But it's not our only one. It's not our only one. The kings of the earth and the, and the judges of the earth are told to be wise here in verse 10, to be instructed. Take a wild guess who they're to be instructed by. Take a wild guess. Us! <laughs> they're, being, they're to be instructed by us. It's a part of our mission to be light of the world. Didn't Jesus say that Matthew 5, 6, 14 through 16 says you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Self-explanatory. Be light. All of us, not just to civilians, but if God puts you in an opportunity with the head of state or even a head of a country, God has servants in high places and he has commanded them to be light. Just like he's commanded us to be light. And that's to take the authority that Jesus has. Did he say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? All of it, not some of it, all of it. Okay. even when they asked for the kingdom, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said, don't worry about all that. You go and you be witnesses to me in Samaria, Judea, and all the ends of the earth. Because why? He said that the father was going to give him the ends of the earth for his possession. Does that mean that every single person is going to become a Christian? No, but throughout this world, we know the road is narrow and few find it. But from every different people group, there's going to be people who believe in Christ. These are our marching orders, right? Onward, Christian soldier. Because our God is the one who reigns. He's reigning right now. In this messianic psalm we're reading, all authority and power has been given to Jesus. We're not waiting for the rapture or some second coming for him to gain that power. It's his, he has it now. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the last two verses here, verses 11 and 12, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Remember we talked about when I started off, the fear of the Lord is kind of a lost understanding, a lost concept today. You just see it in our music, in our culture, in our news, the fear of the Lord is, is, is almost non-existent in this country. Can't say non-existent because there's people who come in this building who fear the Lord and in, in many assemblies in this nation that we live in and all over the world. But these nations that are in rebellion to God, that crucified his son, there was no fear of God before their eyes, just like there isn't in, in the people that we see today. Now, why is that? Because these same nations who raged as rebels, he's brought against him, but he's turning many of those rebels into sons of glory because this is the gospel here in verse 12. Pay close attention. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, right? Blessed are all those who put their hope, their trust in him. Here, kiss is a mark of submission. In old times, when a king was conquered by another king, he would kiss Maybe the ring or a foot as a mark of submission. In the same way, those whom God grants salvation will bend the knee to Christ and they will not perish in the way. They will kiss the Son and make peace with him. These are the ones who are blessed because in trusting Christ, they have escaped God's holy and righteous wrath. So as we close here, I want us to meditate on something. This is a eschatological psalm we've studied. Okay, eschatology means last things. And remember the last things of God. When Jesus came in in Hebrews 1, it says, God with various ways and various times, spoken uh, spoken to uh, the fathers through the prophets in time past, has in these last days, this was the first century, spoken unto us by his son. So the last days are between the first and second coming of Jesus. We are in the last days, but we've been in the last days since Jesus was here. This is the kingdom age. The last days are not some spooky boogie story that left behind series. Okay, we need not fear. We need not fear. So as I bring this to a close, I want us to understand that God is working his good purposes in this world. When you turn on your TV set and you see how much corruption is going on in this country, how many weapons are going to the Ukraine and how much woke nonsense and how they want to persecute Christians and force us to do things contrary to our faith, I want you to remember that God is the one stirring up these nations because he, he reminds rebels that there's going to be a payday And he does that through us. He does that through us. And so these last verses, as we march forward to the destruction of the wicked, that's not all we're marching forward to. It's going to be the deliverance of these sons that he's brought to glory. So let us remember these verses. I always comfort myself with these verses a lot. Psalm 27.1 says the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall you fear? The Lord is the light in our salvation. Who who should we be afraid of? Nobody. Nobody but him. (laughs) But him. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases. So these people that we sometimes get afraid of or worried about what's going to happen if I don't have enough food or what's going to happen if this happens or if that happens or we drive ourselves crazy with that. Our God is in the heaven doing whatsoever he pleases. And this is our God. Hey, Daniel 435. And I'm paraphrasing it, but among the armies of heaven, down here, there's none that can stay his hand or say unto him, what have you done? Nobody can question God about his work in this world. Okay, and we certainly shouldn't. When we get fearful, remember this. In Ephesians 1 11, it says God works all things, not some things, after the counsel of his own will. Okay, that should bring us peace because those who are being predestined are according to the purpose of God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And God has promised there's going to be a remnant according to the election of grace. After we're all dead and in glory, if Jesus has not returned, there's going to be a remnant after us. And we can hold on to that hope because God always keeps his promises. So this messianic psalm, may the Lord Jesus Christ continue to save his people. May we continue to keep on battling because we are the church militant. Just like our sister Sandy, she's the church triumphant right now. She's in glory. And that's where we're headed. Okay, so let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful to be able to bring this psalm to my brothers and sisters. Um, I just pray, Lord, that you would use it. Bless my feeble efforts, Lord, and bless the brothers and sisters here. And I just pray that you would use it to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, any questions or clarifications? Yahweh, all caps, I think, right? When the Lord said to my Lord, You're talking about sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? So is
1: that like
0: Yahweh says to Elohim? Or? Uh, I think there's one in Psalm 45, I believe. I'm not quite remembering, but you know. I know there's one in Hebrews 1 8, and that's quoted out of Psalm 45. I think sometimes it does say Yahweh twice, if I'm not mistaken. I want to
2: say it's Lord twice. I think the, the Lord is what identifies the Lord. To my Lord, is how do you know who's he's talking to? God. There's no way somebody could mistake that for being King David
0: or something like that. No. As a matter of fact, I was just reading about in, in the Gospels in Matthew 22 about when Jesus checked them saying, <laughs> well, if he calls. David is Lord, then how can he be his son, right? And then the Pharisees didn't bother questioning him anymore. But to answer your question, I don't think it's um, El El Shaddai, but um, what's the other word, Adonai? No, I I think it's, I don't even think it's Elohim. I think it's Yahweh twice. I'll look it up while somebody else has. What portion of scripture are we
1: speaking
0: of? It looks like it says Yahweh to Adonai. Adonai, okay, so it is Adonai. But I know that um, there is a couple of times, like in Amos 4, where Yahweh is mentioned twice. And I know a lot of my Jewish buddies, I'm like, well, what do you do with this, right? It's like, they don't believe in Jesus. Um, No, Elohim, I think, can be plural. It can be us. It can be people. It can be, I think Adonai only refers to God, right? I've never seen Adonai
2: mighty lord so it, yeah. could refer, it could refer like technically to a great king but
0: in scripture it's not ever used that way. well i think you got to be careful to say ever sue because yeah because context would govern like for instance if you say well there's one in hebrew i think in in um in zechariah four where it's talking about the kingdom it says who are the?" when he's speaking to the angel he says who are these my lord and he's not saying "I" not there is not being used as God, but like Lord, like in, you know, how Europe has developed, you know, culturally, yes, my Lord, you know, that type of the Lord. So that's actually uh, one that a lot of people who don't believe in Christianity try to use against us and say, see, he's only referencing it as reverence. And I'm like, well, you know, the JWs, like the one in Hebrews 1 or, that you're talking about the Lord said to my Lord in Psalm 110, they'll say stuff like, oh, it's just reverence. And I'm like, how could it be just reverence when he's called mighty God? Like it was just saying he's called, you know, there's no just reverence for calling someone God. And who's
2: about the king? So if David's saying it. He's saying the Lord said to my Lord, who is his My Lord, who's his I don't know. Yeah.
0: You know, right. It, it can't be... And he's saying it to him. He's saying there's a Lord over him. Because he was the first king. And that's the seed of David. That's why he decided to come. Well, that's why I like Psalm 45, because it says, um, Lord, twice. And then it says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. So whenever you bring that up in Hebrews 1.8, anybody who denies the deity of Christ just got fed a meal they can't eat. (laughs) So... Yeah, well, I've heard people say some weird stuff to try to answer that, but there's no answer in truth. Anybody else? Any other questions or clarifications? Yes, Brother Ross. I, I
1: was just going to say, um, it's uh, heartening to me. When I read, And uh, you brought up Psalm one fifteen three, 3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. So that could go in different directions if we don't know who this god is but when we know that he's holy and that he is righteous i'm glad to know that that he has the power to do as he pleases if you think of a god that is wishy-washy and is not immutable uh, other, you know, as when you think of other gods that people worship, it's like where did they get their peace from if they don't know their god? If and if their god is this way one time, they, you know, flippant and and whatever they choose to to do, um, how could you worship a god? Like that, we worship a God who doesn't change and that his truth comes from perfect righteousness and perfect holiness. And therefore, when we read that our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases, I'm thinking right on. Because yeah. he knows the best. Amen. He does the best.
0: Yeah, well, no, that's good. I, I think they don't get their peace. They fly to other idols, they're deceived into thinking that the God that they worship is the true God, and preparing for this, there was a part I left out in Psalm 12, uh, verse 12, where a lot of the Jews, they seem like such, you know, holy, pious, set-apart people, but they're so deceived. Uh, Rabbi Tovalia, you know who that is? You guys know who that is? Well, he debated um, James White and a bunch of other people on Psalm 212 saying that kiss the sun" was not a reference to kiss the sun" because the word in Hebrew for son in verse 7 is ben and then the word for son in verse 12 is bar. And I was like, well, what's what's your point? He said, oh, it should should be arm yourself with purity. I'm like, well, how are you going to do that unless you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Right. But it was really strange to me how they have these bar mitzvahs, which is where a son is supposed to be receiving his purity and bar is actually Aramaic. And I was just listening to them debate and it was some of it was way over my head and I had to look stuff up. But I was like, wait a minute, Hebrew and Aramaic are both in the Old Testament. And this guy is arguing over a nuance in a word. That's in verse 7 and 9 and verse 12, but it's in his manuscripts as well. So they were like, you Christians inserted all of this. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to put this in the sermon. And I mean, it's good for apologetics if you're talking to a Jew, but that's kind of like your answer right there. These guys really think that they have the true God. They really think that we're deceived. They accuse us of all kinds of evil, you know, when it was obviously their ancestors said crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and our children. I mean, well, Jesus, it's really strange well, how they...
1: That argument yeah. over a nuanced word goes back to what Jesus said in the, uh, to to the Pharisees during that time. He said, you guys will strain out a nap, yes. but you refuse the, the, the uh, you know, accusing them to say, you will argue, like, in a way, he's like, you'll argue the most one word. Yeah but you won't do the others that you're commanded to do which is love mercy justice and all that Amen. stuff. Amen. So, so it, to, the, yeah. to that argument with that guy that a rabbi was arguing over that one word I that you're straining on a net. Why are you trying to strain on a net? that is you're trying to you're you're throwing off the context of what the what the word what the what that one song was saying you're just well yeah to do it but not. they
0: have a motive to do that right they exactly. don't want it to be jesus because they
1: don't want because then
0: judaism is false which it is you know it's like it's jesus the told them that it's the law and yeah they they, they to fulfill that it's works righteousness exactly they want to hold on to their idol of i'm holy i'm righteous i'm good and you know, Christianity dispels that. And so Jesus even told them that in John, when he said, you search the scriptures thinking that in they, you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me and you're not willing to come to me. And so when you look at the gymnastics that a lot of these people do, it just, they're a lot smarter than I am, but not when it comes to the spirit, the spirit gives us wisdom, gives us sound, proper logic from the word, God's wisdom. We have the mind of Christ. So we need not fear when we go into battle. It's like people stump us with questions. God has the answer. And if He hasn't revealed it to us, then we have faith. <laughs> we're not gonna know everything. But we our hope is still in Christ. I'm sorry. Oh that's okay. Yeah. Going? I don't no, know. no, 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 we're, what? no. You are such
2: a I was just thinking like as you were going through this Psalm 2, it's like it just really got to me the fact of just how humbling that it really brought me, especially when you were talking about um, ask of me and like you know I'll give it to you, and just it really had this profound um, understanding of just how humbling that is that we have been elected, and that this was through a conversation that the Father and the Son had together, mm-hmm. and that I loved how you brought to the fact that, you know, when we come and worship, that we should really recognize how we have been selected. We've already been, like, in this transaction that they had before yeah. the foundation of the world. And That's I mean, right. It was, just, it was really, like, super humbling. You know? Yeah. I mean, you hear, I mean, as you were going on about that he's king and he's on a throne, and it's just, like, I just felt so humbled by the fact that it's, like, but
0: he picked me. Yeah. You know, he could pick anybody he wants. And it didn't have to be you. And it didn't have to and be And it be. shouldn't have been you exactly.
2: to be told or me, right? But that's my point. Yeah. The fact that just how humbling it is. Yes. And it changes, like, I don't know, it just totally changed my perspective about, like, you want to get deeper. You want to be more meek. You want to be more humble. Yes. It's just like, because you were part of that conversation. And so like that's what, Praise the Lord. Know, that's what I got out of,
0: out of it. That's well, true. that gives me goosebumps just to hear that, uh, because it it gives me goosebumps to read that verse to think that the doctrines of grace are designed to bring us low, where we came from, the dust, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's what we're going back to. Of course, from dust to glory, right? Like I love that thing scroll, right? But we should have no arrogance in us whatsoever. Right. We should be the meekest, mildest people on the face of the planet because we know how we've earned hell hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of times over, right? And it doesn't rest on us. It's not of him who runs nor of him who, not not of him who wills or him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And you know, that should really make our experience with God. We should desire a deeper experience. That should make like that that kingdom passage. When you find out what the kingdom is and who the king is, you, you sell all that you have, right? So you can just get a little, you know, piece that you can, you know, turn right back around and give it back to God, right? So we serve such a gracious master, you know, the most gracious master in the universe. And learning these things is Exactly why the elders here want us to get together and have these afternoon services, so that we can grow together as a body and learn like that. So praise the Lord, Mike. I think just to add to what you're saying too is, he he selected us,
1: but it's not even on the basis of him seeing something that we were going to do in the future, right? It's it's all for his own good, budget,
0: right? And like you're saying, like I, I love how you said we're a love gift between the Father to. Yes. Yeah. It's heavy stuff, man. It is.
2: When you consider that it doesn't take a nation to rage, I've raged against the Lord. My disobedience, my rebellion, and yet in His, His patience and His kindness and His mercy, he's still chosen to save you know, a wretch like me, somebody who. Has not recognized his power, has not acknowledged it, glorified him, and honored him the way that I should. So that makes me all the more want to kiss the Son in in submission. Amen. Receive the the grace that he's
0: giving, that's completely unmerited. That's right. You know, I share that I was telling Paul on the way over here that I just broke down when I went back to go get the chili for the potluck. and I was just like thinking, God, you're about to have me preach on this psalm that it's so much, so high, so majestic, so lifted up. It's like, but I'm so worthless and rotten. Like I just sent my brothers this message about depravity in Job when it says I'm a worm, you know, I'm a maggot. And when we see ourselves like we're supposed to, we ought to see how unworthy we are. But yet the scriptures here in Thessalonians when it says it commands God commands us to walk worthy of the calling of the gospel just like John the Baptist said oh generation of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come therefore bring forth fruits that are worthy of repentance right so God commands us to live a certain way and we know we don't we know we don't so on the way over here I'm like bawling thinking man I'm nothing who am I to even sit down and talk about this When I'm worthless, but thank God I'm not worthless in Christ. I have worth, you know, and that's the very meaning of the two sides of the coin of election and reprobation are we all would be worthless apart from Christ. But because of that conversation, God has placed us in Christ and in there and in him, we find our worth. So, That's the best our feeble minds can do, you know, to understand his revelation. All right. Anyone else? All right. Thank you.
1: Thank you, John.